name's Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Book of the Month Club is this week's sponsor. They're offering listeners uh, their first book for only $5 with code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. Again, that's code Zibby for your first book for $5 to Book of the Month Club, which, by the way, is amazing. I subscribe every month. I get to pick from five of their favorite books. Um, most of the time, one of them is is by an author I've had on my podcast, and then it just arrives. I've given it as a gift. I adore it, and you will too. So think of it for gifts, and um, for sure, go on bookofthemonth.com and subscribe yourself. I'm excited to be here today with Rachel Levy-Lesser, who's the author of Life's Accessories, a Memoir and Fashion Guide. A former marketing and PR exec for magazines and nonprofits, Rachel has written four nonfiction books. Her essays have been published on Glamour, Parenting.com, Queller, Modern Law, Scary Mommy, and other sites. A graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, she received her MBA from the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. She currently lives in Pennsylvania with her husband and two children. So welcome, Rachel. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me, Zibby. <laughs> so can you please tell listeners what Life Accessories is about and what inspired you to write it? Sure. Life Accessories is a coming-of-age memoir told in 14 essays, which come together as 14 chapters to tell a complete story. But each essay is represented by an item of either clothing or jewelry or an accessory or something in my closet in my life that serves as a lens into the experience that I've gone through, the lesson I've learned, the people I've met, and kind of my life. And included also in the book at the beginning of each chapter slash essay is a sketch of each accessory. And I think they did a really good job with the sketches. So give me an example. You're sitting here today with the Elsa Peretti hard Yes, I wore it today To which you. a chapter yeah. is devoted. Yeah, so there are a couple examples. The Elsa Peretti is a good example. The Elsa Peretti heart necklace, which a lot of women and girls our age had, was given to me on my Sweet 16, and I kind of used it to tell the story of how I wore it every day throughout my teenage years, kind of wishing and hoping for that boyfriend to, to come along. And it, the boyfriend finally did come along in college, and then, like many college boyfriends or high school boyfriends, he ended up breaking my heart. And that story is told in the book through the heart necklace. And, you know, it's a story that so many people can relate to on so many different levels. I write about the black nylon Kate Spade bag that a lot of women had in the 90s and how that represented my wannabe Mary Tyler Moore working girl image and how it helped me deal with the crazy bosses I dealt with working in a magazine company and the highs and lows of that. So things like that. I love it. So how did you come up with this idea? So this is actually my fourth book and I've been thinking about it a while actually. And I feel like although this is my fourth book, this is probably the book that I've had in me the longest. It just took me a while to get all these thoughts and feelings and experiences out of my head and onto paper. And I think maybe perhaps I had to go write those first three books first. And I also, in the process of writing the other books and writing essays for various publications and for my own blog, discovered that I have this weird memory to remember everything I ever wore at different points in my life and other people too. And I realized I could use this weird memory of mine to sort of serve as an outline to tell this coming-of-age story. And once I had the idea for it, the accessories and the fashion items just kept coming. And I was able to create this life story, I guess to say, which is really my life story, but the way it's represented in the accessories, I think, you know, made it doable for me. 
And interesting. And it's such a particular time and place story. Yes. Like you tapped into my like childhood. Yes, so I just, so like, you, many people. You just bring it right back. So it's almost like watching a movie of like a time where like my memory is not as good as yours. So it would really <laughs> like, but it comes back. You know, it's like a brownout or something. You know, like totally. when someone mentions it, the memory comes back, but yes. I can't pull it up. So yes. anyway, that's like what your book did for me. Yeah, a lot a of sort of the early readers have told me that too. So quickly, your other books. Yeah. So my first book is a memoir, and they're all in the nonfiction genre. I'm trying to maybe move into fiction later, but the first book is called Shopping for Love, and that really came out of, I wrote it very soon after my mother passed away from cancer. She died 15 years ago. She was 57. I was 29, and I had a brand new baby, and I was a complete mess. I mean, a mess is an understatement. And I was going to see a therapist, and the therapist kind of recommended that I start to write down my thoughts and feelings and memories of my mom just because I was such a mess. And at that time, I was working in marketing and PR. I wasn't even an author yet. And all of these thoughts and feelings and memories of my mom, a lot of them came together in memories of us shopping together. And I sort of developed a thesis. I always like to have a thesis, like from writing in school. And the thesis was kind of that shopping helped to extend the length of my mother's life. I really do believe she... She fought cancer for six years, and she had this very virulent disease where most people only live for six weeks. And I do think that not just the shopping, but the being with her family, the hope for the future really helped her along. So I kind of went back and revisited all these shopping experiences with her. Oh. Yeah. And my second book is a children's book, which people always ask me, are you going to write another children's book? And I really would like to. I just have to get there. And that came out of real life, too. And this was years ago. My daughter whose name is Rebecca, came home from school one day when she was in preschool and said, I have three Dylans in my class. And I thought that was like the funniest thing to say. I mean, we had like seven Jens or right, you know, right. Lisa's. And then she was talked about a Jordan the boy and Jordan the girl. And I started thinking about all these names and about her name. She's named for my mom. So from that, I developed this narrative in my head and then on paper about a little girl named Rebecca Rom who doesn't like her name. And she has to do a project for school about where her name comes from. And she does all this research. And she learns that everybody's named for something or someone. And there's some historical stuff in there. And she learns to eventually love her name. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I don't know if the third book yeah. is like another book. The third book was also many years in the making, a nonfiction that came out of a lot of conversations I was having with my girlfriends. A lot of us worked either full-time or part-time out of the house, and we ended up employing babysitters or nannies to watch our kids. And we used to always say, you can't make this up. And we started to discover, particularly me, that I ended up in many ways working for my babysitters because I just wanted them to stay so that I could go to work and do my job and my kids could be okay. And sort of the stuff you put up with from a babysitter or a nanny working for you, you would never put up with that kind of stuff in an office environment. But it wasn't, a ne- some of it was funny, some of it was crazy, and some of it was really heartfelt in terms of the relationship that the mothers develop with the babysitters because it's not like a regular person you know, who you, who you work with in an office. So I interviewed 15 women across the country, working moms about their experiences and put them together to tell a narrative. That's awesome. Yeah. I could not live without my babysitters. I like love them. They're my, (laughs) and even, you know, my kids are older now, so I don't have that, but I, we still keep up with our babysitters and we always joke that one day my kids are going to babysit for their kids. (laughs) Oh, so sweet. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So let's go back to life success rates. Okay. But I feel like hearing about your books gives you a better picture of who you are, which is why I wanted to have you talk about them. But anyway, okay. So you, you talked about in life success rates in the beginning that you were this, which I find hard to believe 
sort of outcast loner type girl in in your new school. You went to Lawrenceville. You had come from a very small Quaker school that you felt very comfortable in. And you go to this new environment and felt like a fish out of water, basically. And you described how you have to adopt the uniform that everybody there, not like quote unquote uniform, which was Laura Ashley long skirts and Sebago penny loafers that you put real pennies into, J. Crew cable knit sweaters, I would say like L.L. Bean sweaters and like blucher moccasins were like part of the uniform for my school. But so I wanted to know, did changing your outside, like the packaging of you actually help you fit in better? Did it just make you feel better? And would you handle that situation the same way today? Yeah, it's funny. People do say that. I can't imagine you being a loner like that because I don't feel that way now in my grown-up life. But I feel like we've all had that experience at some point in our life, right? And for me, I really did feel like a fish out of water. I was 13 years old. And by the way, in this book, it is not a critique on the school. It is a critique on me. I felt a little funny about saying that, or just sort of a re-examining those high school years. And by the way, I always tell my kids, you don't want to peak in high school. So I feel like yes. that's a good a good lesson that I took out of it. Or sixth grade. Or yeah. sixth grade. Or those yeah. still. My husband and I always joke that we're still peaking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. always good. My grandmother, who's 90, almost 96, says she's never looked better. Right. Just, every year she gets more compliments than the last. That's so great. you never know. So, but that was a painful to revisit because I really did feel so out of place. I had no confidence. And so to answer your question about did the the uniform that I put upon myself help? I mean, in some ways, yes. I've always, as is a little bit evident, been pretty observant about what people are wearing and clothing. And so I sort of, in my 13-year-old mind, thought to myself, well, if I could dress like them, maybe I could be like them. And maybe it would give me some kind of confidence, whether false or not to try to make new friends and try to blend in. So to some extent, it did help. But as in the case of anything, I wish I could go back and do it differently. I mean, first of all, I wouldn't have gotten the perm. And I tell my daughter all the time, she has great straight hair. I say, never get a perm. I don't know if people get perms anymore. I don't know either. Yeah, but that was a big mistake. And back then, that was very, you know... That was the very thing to do. That was the thing, yeah. Yeah, and that was just bad timing. But I wish... I could have been more of myself. But when I say that, I kind of mean myself knowing me now. I didn't know who I was then. And probably when I look back on it, there were so many people who didn't know where they were. And I still, you know, I write about one very good friend who I met who I still keep up with closely. And I still go to reunions. And when I see people, I mean, this is kind of maybe for kids out there, like, it doesn't matter. All that stuff goes away. And everybody is just trying to figure out who you are when you're 13, 14, 15, and even later on in life, too. Yes. Yeah. I remember like I would go to a dances and I was right. so nervous and right. wearing my like long Laura Ashley skirt, right. which is like not cool yeah. for which, a dance. Which by the way, I feel like some of that stuff is back in style. Laura Ashley is now yeah. being made for urban outfitters. And I saw an anthropology the other day, the drop waist dresses are back in. And awesome. Yeah. It's all coming back. Shoulder pads, here I come. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, at the time I remember my mom's advice to me when I went to a dance is just be yourself. Yeah. I was like, I'm 12. Do you know, like, yeah. I have no I idea what that even means. So yeah. I ended up like standing in the corner and not speaking yeah. because I don't know, what did that mean? But anyway, right. so I relate. And I think many people can relate and many people can relate with their kids now going through the same thing. For you sure. know, I'm always like, should I let my daughter buy the same thing that all her friends have? Because I know how important it is yes. to feel like you fit in, but then do I really have to buy this new backpack? I mean, doesn't she have a good enough backpack? So I know, there's a fine line in there. So anyway, but yeah. I, I relate. You started one chapter with the line, I met my husband at a party I almost didn't go to, which is just always how it works in life. So I just wanted to hear more about that situation and how 
you developed with your husband over time because you did such a nice job of talking about all the things that sort of happened in life and how you happened to stay together, not stay together, happened to sort of develop in the same way. And yeah. how could you have known that you would be lucky enough? So like you put a lot of luck into it. So just tell yeah. me your view on yeah, that. Yeah, that's very true. And it always happens that you end up meeting somebody at a party you almost didn't go to. And I really almost didn't go to that party. It was like a Friday night. I worked a long week. I was tired. It was rainy. And my friend convinced me to go to this party. I met my husband, Neil, who, by the way, is like so private and doesn't like, you know, this whole publicity stuff. But he, you know. Sorry, sorry, Neil, don't listen. It works. It works. It totally works. (laughs) We're going to use you a little more here. And so when I wrote about him in in the chapter on him, the mainly focused on him, I do think there is luck involved. First of all, I don't think there is one person for every one person. I think a lot of it is timing. You know, maybe if I didn't go to that party, I wouldn't have met him or maybe I— that night, but maybe I would have met him another night. Or maybe, you know, but I do think there was luck involved in the sense that, you know, when I met him, I was 22 and he was 23. I was 25, he was 26 when we got married, which by today's standards, East Coast, it's very young. And now we've been together for over 20 years. And I write about this in the book. We grew up together and we grew together. And I appreciate that. And I recognize that we totally could have grown apart by no fault of anyone, just by life. And I've seen it happen to people that I know and love. And I'm kind of amazed it doesn't happen more. So yeah, that that it definitely there definitely was luck. But I also think when I met him and getting to know him as I got to know him, you know, there were things that we had similarly aligned values. Our friends got along, our family got along, he made me laugh, I made him laugh. And then life as I write in the book, did throw stuff at us. And, you know, I write a lot about my mom, but, you know, he's been through challenges in life too. And I've supported him in his career. He supported me in my career. One of the things, not that this is like a self-help on marriage, because it's not, but one of the things that I try to remember a lot, which is something that my aunt told me, who's very wise, which is to remember to compliment each other. So I'll say to her sometimes, oh, Neil did this. And she said, well, you should tell him that, that you appreciate that about him. Because I think sometimes we forget to compliment or say something nice about the people that live in our house. So that's good advice. Yeah. (laughs) Very good advice. Thanks to your aunt. Yeah. You mentioned a few times about the loss of your mother and you wrote about it so beautifully and my heart was just breaking for you. You also wrote about it in the context also of clothing. Mm -hmm. One thing you said was how fast your baby weight fell off. And you said the baby weight fell off because your mother was sick when you had your daughter. So my son. My son, I'm sorry, your son. Sorry, can't even remember my own kids' genders half the time. I know. (laughs) The baby weight fell off freakishly fast because I was a freak. I was a brand new 29-year-old mother who was more concerned with the tumors growing inside my 57-year-old mother than I was with the growth chart of my brand new baby. And you said I was a calm mother, I think, because I was a nervous daughter. Yeah, that line resonated with, me and with a lot of other people. And I actually just wrote an essay called Calm Mother, Nervous Daughter in Preparation and Promotion for this book. So I think about that a lot and that timing of it. And, you know, there's one thing that I think about a lot. I actually have this like little scar on top of my left eye, which I can only see like when I'm looking in that mirror to put on eye makeup. And that was from Halloween in 2003. I will not forget this. My baby was only like six weeks old. My mother was very sick. And I was just leaving the farmer's market in our town. I bought her all this like fresh fruit and produce and stuff. And because I was your desperate. Your mother or your daughter? My mother. Because okay. I was like, maybe she has, you know, greens and kale. It'll help fight the cancer. I was just 
grasping at straws and I was buying all this stuff for her and trying to help her out, even though she wasn't asking for it. And I had my baby with me. He was six weeks old. He was in one of those bucket car seats and I was getting the fruits in the car and I was getting him in the car. And I was so discombobulated. I, I slammed the door basically right here on, above my eye and I was bleeding. I mean, luckily it didn't hit my eye. And I just remember I got the baby settled. I was like, all right. I drove to the ER. I brought my six-week-old child into the ER, which you're probably not supposed to do. And I met with a doctor. He stitched me up, just, you know, two little stitches. And then I was like, all right, done with that. Time to bring the fruits over to my mom. I have the baby. So the point really there was that I didn't have time to worry about my baby. And I don't know which came first, if it was cause or effect. He was a good baby. He slept well. He didn't cry that much. And I didn't worry about stuff like tummy time or play classes or developmental goals. And he seemed to kind of reach them. (laughs) And I'm not saying I did it the right way. I did it the only way that I knew how. And, you know, that's something that I think about a lot. I keep it in perspective. I mean, it's been 15 years since my mom died and my kids are now teenagers. And, you know, I have the perspective of the loss, but I also worry about the little things now in a way that I guess I didn't have the luxury of or the time to do it back then. But maybe there was some benefit to that. Maybe there was. I mean, I feel like if I didn't worry so much, my kids, like I worry so much less with my last two kids than I do my first two kids. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, you develop friendships with mom friends over the years, and that's in the book a little bit too. And sometimes we talk about what it was like when they were babies. And I don't really remember a lot because I was so busy with my mom or even after she died, just deal like dealing with the loss of that. So it was a it was a weird time. And it just, you know, it happened the way it happened. You had this one scene in the book where you're in the shower and you scream out loud, like, what the, I'm not going to curse, but what the F about, because right. how could you be a mother without having your own mother? Yeah, that feels, I can, I can remember what that felt like. I've written a lot about grief and I've actually even taught journaling workshops on grief. And the one thing that I do know about grief is that sometimes when you're really in it, it actually physically hurts. And that night that I was in the shower, it hurt. That's probably why I took a shower because whenever I feel achy or sore, I'm like, oh, I'll take a shower. I'll feel better. And I yelled that out loud to nobody. And the thing that I think was so tough for me was the timing. Now, I realize that a lot of people lose parents or people that they love when they're much younger than I was or with a lot less support or under different, maybe harder circumstances. But for me, the way, the best way that I can describe my mom for people who didn't know her is that I could never get enough of her. And so, you know, when I was in college or living in New York and working, she would come see me from wherever she was. And she would, I don't want to make you cry. You're about to. And she would take me out to lunch and we would have a great visit. And then a few hours later that night, I would call her to tell her something else. And I just couldn't get enough of her. And so it felt particularly sad for me that she died, that she left me, which is what it felt like at a time where I had just moved to the area where my parents lived to be with her, where I just had a baby. And I mean, you probably know this from your mom. I think when you have a baby, it's a time where you can reconnect with your mom on a different level. And it just seemed so unfair that that was the time when I was losing her. And so in the shower at that moment, I think I was thinking, how am I going to do this without her? And I've done it without her. And, you know, I don't know what she would think of the job I'm doing. I hope she'd be proud of it. But I still, I don't feel like saying what the F anymore. But even actually this morning, I was talking to a friend of mine from college about some teenage stuff with my kids and schools and things. And I said to her, I just, I wonder what my mom would say. And she said, I'll tell you what she would say. 
And she was right. So I can, I had such a close relationship with her and I know how she parented me that I, I sometimes know what she would say. I'm going on a tangent here. No, I love it. Keep but going. I also know that it's okay. And maybe, listen, I wish she was alive, but maybe because I lost her, maybe I became a different kind of parent, not better or worse, but maybe I was able to make my own decisions and maybe not live in her shadow and be a parent like she was in the good ways and maybe not do the bad stuff, maybe do worse stuff. I don't know. But I think about it a lot. And I look to my friends and their mothers sometimes for advice or to my aunt or to older friends of mine or to my mother-in-law. But there's no one like your mother. And there was no one like my mother. I mean, as is evident. To, when, I see, when I see mothers and daughters together, I'm always a little envious. But, you know, people have that with other things too. So I didn't mean to be like, woe is me, because... You're yeah. not being what was me. Okay. You lost your mom. Yeah. Another thing about my mom, too, is that she did say to me when she was sick, don't ever use me as a crutch and go about your life and live a happy life. That was another inspiration to this book. I looked back at my life and I'm, you know, I'm in midlife. I'm 45. But I realized, you know what? I am this like happy, well-adjusted person. And when I was 29, I really wasn't. And how did I get there? And that was part of, you know, writing the book, too. Oh, yeah. It's also beautiful. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that, but I can't imagine she would be anything but proud of you. I mean, Thank you. Thanks oh my for gosh. saying that. I mean, oh, <laughs> so sorry. So this book, you said it's been in you for a very long time. When yeah. you're going through all this emotion and reliving these sort of painful memories, but also finding an inspiring sort of take on them, where did you do this? Like, tell me, you mentioned these Starbucks lattes. Yes. Some, anyway. I'm addicted to Starbucks. Indoor scarves. Yes, tell me indoor scarves. Whole, so. so there is a chapter in the book called Indoor Scarves and How I Became a Writer. And that is an example of how I started wearing these. I Basically, when the temperature drops below 75, I'm wearing a scarf. And my family makes fun of me for that. You know, these fun, funky scarves that are soft and I figured out that that was also the time when I started wearing them when I was 35 that I left my career in marketing and PR to become a writer full-time. So I wonder if there was a connection to that. Kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek, but related to that. So, you know, like I said, I wrote the first book and it got published and then I wrote more and more and more and I eventually left my day job, so to speak, and became an author. So this book I wrote a lot. I would say I wrote a lot in my house. I have a makeshift office in my living room, which is becoming more of an office. I actually redid it this summer and it looks great. And (laughs) kind of, you know, my day-to-day life is my kids get off to school and I write. I'm a morning person. So I'll write at home. I like to wear a scarf. It keeps me cozy. I'm always accessorized. And then usually around midday, I will head over to Starbucks because I like to get out. There's a lot of, sometimes other coffee houses, but usually Starbucks. There's a lot of distractions in my house. And sometimes people say, how can you focus in a coffee shop? But I just put my AirPods in. And then I'm usually out and about so I can pick up a kid or or do something that I need to do. And when I'm really, that's how I wrote this book. It took me about a year to write. And when I'm really writing I am into it and I won't stop. I don't stop a lot to edit. I write and then I go back and edit. It's kind of how the process works for me. Have you thought about your next writing project? I have. So I said before that I've written all nonfiction and I always said to myself, I can't write fiction. I'm not creative enough. I don't know how to do that. And I was actually having coffee with an author friend of mine a little over a year ago and she was, she felt the same way. And then she wrote a, a, a book and a fiction book. I shouldn't just say a book. And she kind of inspired me a little bit. And I I went back and I've outlined a book. I have these characters in my head. I started really writing it last fall. And I think I might like it better than writing memoir and nonfiction because I feel like there's not a lot of rules. 
the truth is, is that all the characters that I sort of, you know, make up are everything's sort of based on real life. But you don't have to, in memoir, what happened to me is what happened to me. You can't make it up. So um, I really am into this idea. I love these characters. I feel like now when I'm working, I play with them. It's like I'm playing with my imaginary friends in my head. It's a little weird. I think about them at night. But for now, I tabled that for a while because this book is coming out this fall and I got really busy with promotion and marketing and events. And I'm, I'm kind of focused on that right now. And I have to say, I love that. I mean, I like being an, a writer because I love writing and I like the solitude of that. But I love people and I love getting out and talking to people about it. So once, you know, this whole book tour and stuff is, dies down a little bit, I will definitely go back to my friends in my head <laughs> <laughs> and, write more fi- and write fiction. So... And do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Yeah, well, a couple things. Like, funny what I just said about being a people person. In When I work a lot at Starbucks, a lot of times people say, oh, I have this idea, I have this friend, can she call you? And I used to be a lot more open to that, not to be, like, mean about it or now, but I found sometimes I would meet people and they'd be like, yeah, I have this idea. It's kind of like button chair. You have to sit down and write it. And you might think it's horrible, but you got to start somewhere and you got to write it. And then once you have something, I think you have to be able to take criticism, which was a hard lesson for me to learn from an editor or somebody you trust or an agent. And then you also, you have to be able to put yourself out in the world and put the book out in the world. I mean, I think the world of publishing is changing so much. As you know, you're doing amazing things to get people out there, but say yes to everything. Like, do podcasts, talk to people, go to events. I'm doing events that aren't necessarily traditional book events too. So that kind of runs a gamut from like beginning, middle, and end. But I think there's a lot, a lot in there. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I forgot to ask you about your chocolate chip cookies. And oh. Rachel was so sweet and brought me chocolate chip cookies today after I had been asking her about her reference to them in the book and an article she'd written. Or something. Yeah, anyway, I wrote so. an article <laughs> about the Huffington for the Huffington Post about my chocolate chip cookies. I made them famous. You did. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were amazing. So thank you. That made my day, too. Thank you. To I'm glad you. you enjoyed them. Cookies <laughs> are always good. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for coming. Bye. This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonth.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for $5. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com.